Hello, my name is Michael Bassett and welcome to Bright Future. My guest today is a name well known to many Canadians. Health columnist Andre Picard joins me to talk about what reopening the economy will look like from a health perspective. This is especially timely as summer has arrived in Canada. We're having to come face to face, sometimes literally, with what social distancing looks like when the weather beckons us outside and into public spaces. We talk about how there are no absolutes in this crisis, only risks to be managed. What will it take to start reopening our businesses and workplaces again? What will your workplace look like when you do return? And what exactly is temporal distancing? Andre shares his praise and critiques for how different provinces are approaching the reopening. From BC's strengths to Andre's concerns around Ontario's approach to testing. I should mention, between when we recorded this and its release, Ontario significantly expanded the testing criteria it's using. We'll have to wait and see if that addresses the concerns Andre shares in the podcast. More than anything, it shows how quickly things can change. We also talk about bright spots, like how the use of telemedicine is increasing and how our resilience will ultimately see us through. I hope you enjoy this episode. Andre is the health columnist at the Globe and Mail and the author of five books, most recently Matters of Life and Death. He's a graduate of the University of Ottawa and Carleton University and has received honorary degrees from six Canadian universities, including UBC and the University of Toronto. Welcome to the podcast, Andre. Hi. You know, we wanted to talk to you about the reopening because you've written quite extensively about it and wanted to really explore some of the research that you've done and the opinions on the reopening and how we can get it right in Canada. We've seen an increasing number of jurisdictions in the last little while open up, and you've really praised some of the provinces in their approach, and you've been a little critical of some of the others. What are the elements that you think are necessary for part of reopening plans? I think there's a couple of things. One of them is we have to have some control over the outbreak. So there has to be a flattening of the curve. Everybody knows the famous epidemic curve now. Uh, So there has to be some flattening and even some lowering a bit. So that's happening in most of the country. Provinces like BC, they've really gotten control. I think they only had two new cases yesterday. So it's really under control. So they can afford to be loosen up and reopen more. Uh, Then we have jurisdictions like Ontario, where I think it was 400 cases today. Quebec has more than 600, almost 700 new cases. Their curve is, if it's not quite flattening some days, it's even rising again. So they have to be much more cautious about reopening. And that's not necessarily what's happening. We're seeing Quebec being fairly aggressive and parts of Ontario as well. What do you ascribe the nature of that opening to? Is it because they are so focused on the economy, or is it because they're taking a calculated risk from a health perspective? I think there's a bit of both. I think there's a focus on the economy, rightly so. There's a recognition, and I think we have to talk about this, recognition that we're not going to stop this, but we're going to limit the damage. So I always talk about, from a public health perspective, harm reduction. So we know there's going to be spread of illness. We're not going to stop it, but we want it to be controllable. So we don't have hospitals overwhelmed. So we don't have half the workforce sick at the same time. So it's about limiting the damage and spreading it out over time. So that's important. Uh, The economy is, of course, important to our health. We have to have jobs, we have to have income, a roof over our heads to be healthy. So these things are important. So isolation, locking down, that was never going to be forever. It was going to be for a limited period. It's helped. 
but now we have to figure out how to ease out of it. And I think that's the, the key word is easing out. And it's going to be different in different parts of the country based on the situation. What about testing or contact tracing? The idea of understanding where the disease is so that we can respond to where those outbreaks are quickly. Yeah, so that's essential. The mantra of public health is test, trace, and isolate. So you test as many people as you can, but it has to be targeted. It can't be willy-nilly. And then you trace quickly. The gold standard is you should be able to find everyone's contacts within 24 hours, test them. If they're infected, then isolate them. That mantra is really important. Now, BC can do that. Most provinces can do that. Ontario is not doing it. They're not. They're failing miserably, I think, on testing plan. They don't seem to have a plan. And they're failing on contract tracing. It's taking forever. Uh, Quebec is a little different. They're doing a little better on testing. Contact tracing, they keep saying that most of their cases are traced within 24 hours, but they still have this massive spread. So there's a bit of a disconnect with Quebec. But, you know, in, unless you can do that, unless you can track people and trace their contacts within 24 hours, we're going to have these little embers in the community explode into fires again. Right. One of the questions that we talked about on this podcast, actually in our first session, was this digital tracing and the ability to trace digitally as part of the contact tracing. Is that something that you are optimistic about? I honestly don't see that happening in a country like Canada. You know, it can work in Hong Kong, it can work in Singapore, different cultures. In a country like Canada, a democratic country, uh, we're kind of obsessed with our personal rights, our privacy. I don't see that happening. We have voluntary apps. A few thousand people have signed up for them in, in Alberta in particular. But, you know, it's not the people who sign up voluntarily are the ones we want to follow, to be honest. So it's not, not that useful. So I, I think it's a good technology. I think we may get there someday, but I, I don't think we're there. I don't think we're ready for that in Canada legally or ethically or culturally. Part of this reopening you've talked about is this move away from this total shutdown of our economy and of our society. And one of the things that you've talked about as important in understanding how we move out of this lockdown is really connecting the health side, but also the health dimensions of isolation and connection. I've seen you talk about it as it relates to long care homes, but it really affects many places. So what message do you hope people hear when we look at restarting the economy, when we're trying to balance this delicate balance between a very health-focused response and the broader health dimensions of getting back into society and getting back to, to work and to our lives? Yeah, I hope people understand that there aren't any absolutes. It's about managing risk. So we've spent you know, quite a few weeks and a lot of effort kind of scaring people into staying home. And now we have to kind of unscare them. We have to tell them, yeah, we can't do this forever. So we have to manage the risk. So I always tell people, I like to use the analogy of, you know, we take risks every day. Crossing the street. I live in Montreal. Crossing the street is always a risk, the way people drive here. So I manage that, right? I look both ways on a one-way street, et cetera. So you have to learn to manage the risk. And that's what we have to do with COVID-19. And managing risk is all about minimizing your contact. So it's not about seeing no one. It's not about never going to work. It's about going to work in a different workplace. It's about not visiting 10 people, visiting one per day. You know, it's, it's, that's how we're going to have to live our lives for a bit and we're going to have to adjust. 
talking about workplaces, I think it's interesting to understand how workplaces are going to manage that risk. How are employers going to be responding to these opportunities to reopen? Where do you think they should be focusing their attention? Well, I think it has to be it has to be about protecting their staff, right? It has to be protecting their assets. Uh, business is all about people, and that's what you want to do. So don't, nobody wants to have their employees infected and get sick. So we're going to have to figure out how to do that. But I remind people, you know, people say, oh, public health is telling us to do all these things. Private enterprise is going to be way more strict than public health has ever been. I think people haven't recognized this yet. When you go back to the workplace, the rules are going to be way more strict than they are in general society. It's going to be how you circulate around the office, how many people on an elevator. Masks may be mandatory in some workplaces. They're not mandatory in society. I think people, I don't think they've wrapped their heads around yet how different the workplace is going to be. And that's coming. And I know a lot of employers are, are struggling with that, figuring out how to limit their liability, how to protect their workers, but not to make it an impossible work environment. Some of these questions are just so daunting. The elevator in a 30-story building, for example. I think there's going to be a lot of work for statisticians and math mathematicians and figuring out these uh, algorithms for moving people around. You know, that's become really important. I think we have to do things. We've learned this terminology, physical distancing. I think we're going to learn about something called temporal distancing, so spreading people out over time. So I see workplaces, it's not going to be everybody going nine to five anymore. Some people are going to be going from five till noon. Some will be going from noon to six. It'll be your same office space, but it'll be spreading out the people over time and not just over space. Right. Back in 2011, 2012, you were our scholar in residence, and you wrote about how our Canadian healthcare system really needs to drag itself into the 21st century. And this was almost 10 years ago. And so there have obviously been some changes, but the pandemic has really highlighted major areas where we feel more progress needs to be made. What are the gaps that you identified in your work whether the work for us or in the more recent books that you've written, that really would have helped us to be better prepared for the pandemic. And you're hoping we can move on for the next, either the next wave or the next potential pandemic threat. I think there's a couple. One is that, uh, you know, we're a very hospital centric health system. And we've seen that play out in this epidemic. And that hasn't been a bad thing. Our hospitals have done exceptionally well. We really invested a lot of resources in make sure, making sure people didn't get sick in hospitals as they did during SARS. So we did that tremendously well. But we did it at the expense of long-term care homes. Nobody thought about them. Alarm bells should have gone off. These are the most vulnerable people in society, and we didn't protect them. And the result is we have this carnage, right? We have five, 6,000 people who've died in long-term care at last count. And it's, it's awful. So I think that's a reminder of some of the stuff I talked about in, in that uh, book for the conference board was how we are not adjusting to our demographics. Our system is built for 1957, the baby boom, when we had young, healthy people. And it's not built for caring for people in an aging society. And we've seen the real tragic consequences of that. You know, we warehouse people, we put them in a situation that's almost perfect for the spread of illness. And then we are living the consequences now because of this virus. So that's a really important message that we've learned. I think the other one is, I talked about a lot in that book that I did for the conference board about managing our workforce. 
it's very disorganized. We don't have a plan. We don't have a, a personnel plan in the largest industry in our country in healthcare. It's all done in pockets, doctors, nurses, as if the others don't exist, and personal support workers. Again, a group that's come to the fore during this crisis, uh, underpaid, undertrained, uh, mishandled, taken for granted. And again, they're suffering and their patients are suffering because of all these systemic issues that have existed for 50 years. And we knew there were problems and we've just never dealt with them. And again, now we're paying the price for it. So those are two really big ones are the hospital-based, the personnel. And then we have some, I think, some little bit of bright lights there. We're seeing a, a finally we're embracing telemedicine. You know, we're talking on computers like we're doing now. And magically, it works. We've known for a decade or two that it would work, but we're finally being forced to do it. For folks who haven't read your book, do you want to provide some of those recommendations? Yeah, I think the biggies, the big philosophical change, I think, is we have to go from having a sickness care system to having a health care system. So investing more in keeping people healthy. I think we have to integrate. We can learn from the Nordic countries, for example, the importance of integrating the health and social services. And again, we're seeing this in with COVID-19. One of the things our government has done best is bring in these income supports. And that's what's keeping us from having a real disaster. People aren't dying of starvation, even though they don't have jobs, right? So that's a really important element of healthcare. So that integration of health and social services is really important. Adjust your system to the demographics was a big recommendation. Remember that the system is not about bells and whistles. It's about people. It's a people-based system, and we haven't got the people in the right place at the right time. And again, that's being magnified uh, under this crisis. So all the big elements that I touched on have come to bear. You know, what this crisis has done more than anything is expose the weak points in society, and nowhere more so than in, the, in our sickness care system. What about the long-term homes? How would you want us to try to change the system to better protect elders? I think the really important thing is not to say we have to fix long-term care, because what we have to do is rethink how people live in our society as they age. So it's much more fundamental than fixing long-term care. I do a lot of talks, I do a lot of speeches, and I often, uh, at the beginning of a talk, I say, who here would like to live in a nursing home or a long-term care home? And Never does anyone's hand go up. Even I, you know, I spoke to owners of long-term care homes, and they weren't lifting their, they weren't raising their hands either, right? Nobody wants to live in these homes. Why do we have four hundred thousand people in institutional care if no one wants to be there? So we have to really fundamentally rethink it. Uh, why aren't we investing more in home care? Why aren't we building our cities so that they're more senior-friendly, so you you don't have to go into an institution by default? Some people do need institutional care, maybe with advanced dementia. Why are they in buildings with 400 people? Why aren't they in homes of 12 people the way they are in Denmark, for example? So I think it's a fundamental rethink of how do we care for our elders as they age? And it's, you know, it's not just about giving them pills. It's about giving them a place to live, giving them dignity, a place where their loved ones can visit easily. It's really basic stuff. And it's not about, it's not about medicine. It's about health. It's interesting your examples are often related to Nordic countries or you mentioned Denmark. In Canada, we often compare ourselves to the U.S., often for good reason. They're our number one trading partner. They are our closest neighbor. The pandemic has really shown 
a huge divide between the Canadian response and the U.S. response. You're quite critical of this idea that we keep looking to the U.S. And if we feel comfortable that we're doing better than the U.S., then we're doing pretty good. I don't think we should compare ourselves to the U.S. because they don't have a healthcare system. It's totally decentralized. It's a profit-making business. It's, you know, there's excellent care there all over the place, but there's no organization whatsoever. So we have a system. It's not a very complete system, but let's compare ourselves apples to apples, not apples to pineapples. The U.S. is so far out that it's not, not comparable. So let's look at the Netherlands. Let's look at Denmark. Or let's look at France, uh, Germany. And these places have private care, public care. They have different systems. And I don't ever suggest that we should try and import them because, uh, you know, a health system is very culturally based, but we can learn from them. We can learn from each other. And that, that's what we have to do. The reason I often point to the Nordic countries is I think some people say, oh, well, you point to them, they're all very, they're all lefties, but they're not, you know, what they are is they're pragmatic. They just do stuff that works and they don't care if it's private or public or, and they're not bound by their history. In Canada, we have these shackles of history, Medicare 1957, and nothing's really changed since then. And that's, you know, it's the only country I know in the world that's sort of bound by its history to do nothing. Yeah, bound by our history to do nothing. I haven't heard that before. That's definitely a challenge. Well, who who do you compare us to? And what are the things that you think we really need to strive for to improve as we respond through this pandemic and seize, frankly, some of the energy and the experiences that we've had to address some of those weaknesses? Well, I think because so much attention has been paid to long-term care, I would point to a country like Denmark as a model. Denmark is a country that aged a little quicker than Canada, so they've had to deal with this a little earlier. And they really decided, they made a definite decision to say, listen, we're not going to hospitalize everyone. We're going to make community care the priority. Denmark has not built a new hospital bed, has not added a new hospital bed since 1980, right? That's astonishing. The hospital care there, they don't have weights like we do. They have way fewer beds. Well, why? Because they've invested massively in home care, institutional care I mentioned earlier, they have these little homes, dozen, two dozen people, not these massive institutions like we have. Well, they don't have outbreaks. No, there's no deaths in long-term care. There, there are in Italy, there are in France, in Britain, who have models like us. You know, I'm not pretending that European countries are perfect, but the ones who've done well, little manageable homes. So that's, I think, a really important lesson. The other really important lesson from all those Many of those European countries is that integration of economics and, and health and how they're interchangeable and you can't really divorce one from the other. So what's going wrong? If people don't have enough income, well, then we're going to have more income supports. We're not going to give them more pills because they're depressed. We're going to find a way of giving them money for food. And I, I think we have to have that flexibility and that practicality more often. And actually, you know, this epidemic is forcing us to do this, right? With all these, we have a massive number of new social programs and everyone loves them all of a sudden. You know, all these things we don't like and we all, all of a sudden like because we personally need them. We can talk about the Canadian healthcare system, but there's also the reality of our Indigenous population and their access to health being significantly different than the access that other Canadians might have and their approach to health being very different. So far, we've avoided any of the kinds of 
significant outbreaks in those communities that could be devastating and highlight that. But it is quite a concern. You've written quite extensively about the Indigenous health situation in Canada. Do you think we've been lucky or do you think that there are things that have provided strength and resilience within those communities that we've managed to sort of get it right? I think to a certain extent we've been lucky, but I also think we we plan. So uh, not people don't always know this, but the uh, 2009 pandemic of H1N1 totally devastated many Indigenous communities. There were massive death rates. That was an epidemic that didn't really hit mainstream Canada, but it really devastated Indigenous communities. So they learned a lot from that. As soon as this one came along, they went on alert. A lot of communities in the North closed their borders far before Canada closed its border to the U.S., so there's a lot of proactive movement, and they, they don't get credit for. These communities acted, and that was great. And then there were places like Saskatchewan, where there were some outbreaks in Indigenous communities, but they acted really quickly and relentlessly, and they controlled them. These are little good news stories we don't always read about. And why did this happen? It happened from larger policies where we're seeing more autonomy in Indigenous communities, more self-government. And again, research shows us that. How how do you make these communities healthier? It's not just by pumping in government money. It's by giving people a sense of belonging, a sense of control, and being able to do, you know, create their own jobs, etc. The Indigenous communities want the same as, as the rest of the world. They want to be able to live independently and freely. And that's, again, I think a really important public health lesson that we're starting to apply. Let's just not keep sending them medicine. Let's give them the means to get healthy. What other lessons do you think we've learned in this pandemic? Well, I think I mentioned a couple before. I think I think I hope we've learned that we have to fix elder care pretty profoundly. Uh, telemedicine, I think I really hope that it's going to be here to stay, that we've learned the benefits of it. I think we've learned some interesting thing about hospitals that, hey, we don't need to have hallway medicine. We don't have to have hospitals at 120% occupancy. They're operating fine now at about 70, 80%. What can we learn from that? Where have all these patients gone? Should they have been there in the first place? So some really important lessons there for the, the medical part of our system. And then there's that social aspect. I really hope that we've learned the importance of public health. You know, our public health people who toil invisibly have now become these almost icons, you know, like Dr. Bonnie Henry has become this figure that everyone in Canada knows about. Uh, they paint murals of her, etc. Uh, so I think, Make shoes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Get their fancy shoes named after yeah. <laughs> her. So I, I hope that people recognize the importance of that. The paradox of public health is always that when it's really working, it's invisible, right? So these moments of visibility, I hope it'll remind us to keep funding it. Because what happens after every disaster? Public health gets a massive influx of money. A few years later, we cut it. And then, predictably, we get another disaster. So we have to, I think, have a little more long-term vision in our system. I, I hope we'll have learned that lesson. Are you optimistic that the country is learning that lesson? Well, we always learn our lessons. The question is, do we keep, uh, do we forget them too quickly? So I think that's been the problem in the past. We don't have problems learning lessons. We have problems forgetting a little too soon. You've talked about virtual medicine. Uh, I know my father has had a iPad visit with his doctor in this experience and went well. We've seen that in many areas, whether it's in the economy and online shopping or remote work. We're all managing in our basements. 
or in our living rooms. What other trends in the health system are being accelerated that you think are really going to help us to get to that next level? I think another really important one is just how we're being forced to rethink our cities, right? So now everybody suddenly appreciates taking a walk. After we're locked up for eight weeks, we want to walk. And then we realize, boy, we have really crappy places to walk. Our side, why are our sidewalks this big and our roadways are this big? I think there's some fundamental rethinking of cities going on. Where I live in Montreal, they've expanded the sidewalks temporarily. We've added 1,200 kilometers of bike lanes, all this to keep people from going stir crazy. But hopefully they just won't tear down those barriers and close the bike routes when we go back to normal. Because I don't think there's going to be a normal like before. I think our social interactions are going to change profoundly. What impact is that going to have on our health? I think one of the great unknowns is the mental health aspect. We haven't talked too much about that, but you know, we have a real challenge in Canada of providing mental health care. We do the physical health really well, the mental health poorly, and there's going to be mental health consequences of this for years, of trauma, of just living in isolation, loneliness. All these things have health impacts that are, are profound, and we just don't know how bad or how they're going to play out over time. What are you looking for in the mental health space to help with that? My impression is that there are sort of two experiences in the lockdown so far. There are those who are more isolated and alone, and that seems to be the barrier. And then there are those where whole families are just living on top of each other in the same space. And so there, each of those has its own stressors. There are mental health consequences to the situation, regardless of whether you're struggling with loneliness and isolation or you're struggling with too much connectedness, for lack of a better term. Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things. One, I think, again, this crisis has magnified a problem that already existed. You know, we have one in eight seniors live in total isolation, like no friends, family, or anything. And they've been really that's a severe health crisis for them in this to even be further isolated. So that's been shown. I think we're going to see lots of PTSD, especially in our health workers from what they've gone through. So that's going to be a consequence. But the other aspect that I always underline is I think it's important that we not pathologize everything. We're having these emotions and that doesn't, emotions are not mental illness, right? So I think uh, we have to recognize, and I think this will teach us that people are quite resilient. Humans are amazingly resilient. We put up with all kinds of things and we get better. And I think we have to be careful to not assume that everyone's going to come out of this crazy and depressed because they're not. Most people are going to be fine. A lot of people are doing much better. They're like, wow, uh, I don't travel half the year anymore. I actually get to talk to my kids. I have to have dinner with my family. Lots of people are rethinking how they live their lives and that that's for the better. Now, then there's the downside. There's the burden of women caring for children at home because there's no school, there's no daycare. Is that going to set back uh, women in the workplace by 50 years overnight? I think we have to worry about these things and the economic consequences, uh, social consequences of that. So that's things like these public health pandemics have all these ripple effects that I think we're just starting to begin to understand. Absolutely. Well, Andre, thank you so much for helping us to understand a bit more today in this discussion. Anything that we haven't covered that you think is important to sort of communicate before we're, we sort of wrap this up? 
No, I think the last thing uh, is always maybe odd for a journalist, but I think we have to be pretty optimistic about this. I think we've come out of, uh, this was a, a major threat. We've handled it pretty well. Canadians have shown themselves to be really thoughtful about their neighbours. We've all made great sacrifices to prevent the spread of illness, and it's worked. We've embraced these social programs. They're going to help our economy get by. So I don't think things are as grim as people think they are, and they're certainly much better than they could have been. So I think we have to give ourselves a lot of credit. I think that resilience part is important too. I think people are going to come out of this pretty well, and uh, lots of opportunities that come out of this, not just bad things. Andre, I think that's a perfect place for us to end this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great. Thank you. You've been listening to Bright Future by the Conference Board of Canada. This series is produced by Jen DeHamel. Nancy Nguyen is our audio engineer and Andy Joy is our writer. Ideas were contributed by Rob Collins and Aaron Brophy. I'm Michael Bassett and I'm the host and executive producer for this series. The views expressed by our guests are theirs alone and do not reflect the conference board's opinion. For more podcasts, videos, commentary, and ideas, visit conferenceboard.ca.